But no, it was the culture that was different. Flying off a carrier, flying off a ship is always going to be dangerous, but that's what we've got to do. Being blunt, there will always be another aeroplane, another pilot. That culture was just somehow acceptable in those days. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello, I'm Peter Johnson, and thank you for joining us today. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Bond to talk about the helicopter in Fleet Air Arm Service through the stories in his third book in the series of Fleet Air Arm Boys Helicopters, True Tales from Royal Navy Men and women, air and ground crew. Steve, welcome to Extended. Thank you, Peter. It's great to have you here. I can't believe we haven't had you on the show um, already um, because the Boys series is very prolific and you've had a massive hand in many of those books. But before we talk about the book itself, um, tell us a little bit about your your background in aviation and, and what brings us to this point to talk to you. Sure. Well, I've been in aviation professionally since 1973 when I joined the Air Force as a, an aircraft propulsion technician, ultimately. And I served there for 22 years. Along the way, it was quite obvious in my early years in the Air Force that there were still people serving who'd served during the Second World War. And I've always been fascinated in aviation history. I got that from my dad, actually. So I thought, well, why don't I start recording these stories? And so it went from casual chats to people of that that vintage, if you like, to starting to record them. And eventually I got to the point where I thought, what am I going to do with all these recordings? Hence the breakdown, break into books. But to finish off the story about my own aviation career, I left the Air Force in 1995 and went into academia as a senior lecturer at City University in London, where I set up the world's first uh, Master of Science professional development course in air safety management. Uh, And my latter years in the Air Force and at City University, air safety, aviation safety was my big thing uh, and still is to this day. I retired from the university in 2013, uh, still occasionally do some lecturing in aviation safety, but these days book writing has just taken over my life it's retired haha really <laughs> retired not really it's <laughs> right i'm yep. busier now than i've ever been yeah. so that's my aviation yeah. and are background. you enjoying it are you, re- are you enjoying i the, wouldn't do it the, the writing because i get a f- yeah i get i get a feeling of your passion for aviation through through your words yeah absolutely i enjoy it uh it's based primarily on all these people that I've interviewed. I must have interviewed hundreds of people over the last 40-odd years. And 
as I said a little while ago, that's what led me into book writing. And it's the stories coming from people and you think, wow, I never knew that. That's amazing. That has really driven the passion to get as many of these stories out in the public domain as possible uh, because so much gets lost. I'm sure you've heard it too. So often you hear about uh, people's stories not being recorded and then when they are dead and gone, the family say, oh, I wish Dad had told us about that. Uh, And I'm trying to capture as much of this history as I can and put it in out there in the in the public domain, if you like, so people get to learn more and more and hear more and more and more about our aviation history. Right, okay. That sort of answers a little bit of the first question I was going to ask you, but I think I'll put it to you anyway. Um, Fleet Air on Boys Helicopters is the third of four books, I think. I think you've still got another one, at least one more yes, we're, um, we're, to we're, come. Yes, we're, <laughs> we're proofreading number four now. And that's the last one. Right, okay. Right, okay. Um, why do you think this particular subject, the fleet air arm, has, has, has been so riveting and is so uh, interesting to your audiences? I think a lot of it is because people, by and large, are not aware of the fleet air arm. That's one of the reasons that I got into this series of books. Yes, there have been stories about fleet air arm people like uh, uh, Winkle Brown and that sort of thing and some in the cockpit series of books. But by and large, in my view, the fleet air arm has not had the, the service done to it in books that it deserves. And I always, when somebody asks that question, I always say the same sort of thing. If you stop uh, a man in the street, quote unquote, and say to them, or him or her, who flies um, combat aeroplanes in the United Kingdom? And they all say the Royal Air Force. And when you say to them, well, what about the Navy? They, they look shocked. Well, they've got ships, haven't they? So it's that whole background of the fleet air arm which has not really been uppermost in the public eye. Now, the reason I started doing fleet air arm boys was partly because of that, partly because I've always had a fascination in the fleet air arm anyway, um, and partly because when I've been doing the boys series, I was actually going to do Vampire Boys, and I know you've spoken or are going to speak to Charlotte about that. I was going to do Vampire Boys, and originally I was going to do Vampire and Venom. So I was looking okay. for people to talk to, and... I very quickly had contact with a number of Sea Venom pilots and it was one man who said to me, why are you stopping at Sea Venom? What about the Sea Vixen and the Scimitar and all the rest? And that was the light bulb moment when I thought, ah. So I said to Grub Street, I want to write a series of books about the post-war fleet air arm. I can't go right back to the start of the RNAS. I haven't got that long to live. So I'd be... (laughs) <laughs> took it the starting point is 1945 bring it right up to date right. and broken down into types of aircraft that's how it initially started wow okay so so let's talk about this book then let's talk about um the rotary element of the um 
of the Navy service. To, can you just give us a flavour for a bit of the history around helicopters in the in the fleet air arm? Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing to say about helicopters is a lot of people still look upon helicopters a bit of a novelty, uh, a bit of a joke. There was always a standing joke when I was in the Air Force from the fixed-wing people talking about helicopters. The only reason they fly is because they're so ugly the world rejects them. Um, take that as you like. But helicopters have been with the fleet air arms since the late 1940s in a, a sort of experimental basis, but they've been on board ships since 1950. And initially, they were seen as a really valuable tool for search and rescue. So you had dragonflies on ships in 1950-51 and during the Korean War and so on. But over the years since then, the possibilities of using helicopters for other things have emerged anti-submarine, um, and now we have airborne early warning, uh, search and rescue, as I said, uh, supporting ground troops with the junglies, those sorts of things. So the uses of the helicopters have expanded exponentially. And the other important point when you're talking about the fleet air arm is if you look at the fleet air arm between 2010, when the Harrier carriers went, and 2020, when the first F-35 started to come on the scene, it was only helicopters. So you can't ignore yeah. that. It was a tremendous, yeah. important part of the Navy, um, and still is, of course. But for 10 years, it was only helicopters. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I, I suppose a bit like you were talking at, at the start, it's sort of a bit of an unseen service. But the helicopter, as you said, became something that the Navy was able to turn its its service to to deliver elements uh, uh, of what it needed of what it needed to do and those early dragonflies and 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 some of the helicopters you talk about in the early stages of the book they were pretty frail oh. and um I don't know not particularly yes. safe vehicles were they <laughs> well that's very true the, the dragonfly was really the only game in town at that time. Uh, not terribly capable. Um, you have this extraordinary system, the Dragonfly, where to maintain the centre of gravity in the right place, depending on what you're doing, you have weights which you have to physically move to keep them in the right place on the aeroplane. It's just bizarre. Um, yeah. But yes, but they were pretty frail things, and I'm sure at some point we'll come on to talk about the whirlwind and all its problems with engines and the, the early Wessex with their problems with engines. Um, but it, it's moved on a lot from that. And uh, today's helicopters are just phenomenal machines. But but yes, it's yeah. a steep learning curve to get reliability and usability into helicopters. And the Navy, the Fleet Air Arm, has really done as much as, if not more, in that regard, than the RAF, because they were the ones who needed the ability to have helicopters on ships, not just to rescue people, but to to fly away from small ships looking for the threat coming in, which without the helicopter, they wouldn't be able to do so well. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Brits and and some of the Europeans were a bit behind the Americans, but 
But as you say, the fleet air arm and, and the Navy were pretty progressive. But you brought mention there of the whirlwind. Let's jump straight in to 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 that. I when I was reading the book, it was taking me back thirty thirty years and uh, remember it. Oh, 30, 40 years, maybe should leave those times out. But um, took me back to a time when I remember growing up with some of these Cold War uh, helicopters, loved the whirlwind. Um, we'll get on to talk about the Wessex. Um, but I suppose from my naive young enthusiast's position, I saw these things flying around. What I didn't know until I really read the book is it was a beast of a helicopter. Um mm but it had terrible, terrible engine failures. Because we look back through the eyes of today where failure is is very small. Mm. But it, but back in the day, um, I'm not saying failure was accepted, but it was a much higher rate of failure, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Um, there are a number of reasons for that, not least because I, I mentioned my work in aviation safety. Back in those days, in the 50s and early 60s, even and perhaps beyond, there was no such thing as safety management and risk assessment. And when aircraft were being designed, nobody thought about what is today referred to as reliability centre maintenance, um, continuing airworthiness. That was all still to come. So it was basically, what do we want something to do? Um, how many people should it carry? What's its load lifting capability? Oh, that engine should be able to do that. That'll do. So it, it, I'm being oversimplistic, but it's almost that. You you design to your best ability uh, without really having all the tools you might need, all the most appropriate power plants you might need. Whirlwind's the case in point. Because you mentioned the Americans being ahead. Well, of course, don't let's forget that the vast majority, yes, the yeah, majority of fleet air arm helicopters have been license-built versions of Sikorsky designs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Albeit we, we take uh, the Whirlwind, uh, the S-55 that was in America, we, we put an Alvis Leonides in it, which was a bloody disaster, um, if I'm allowed <laughs> to say bloody. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's only, it's only when you get to Wasp Link's um, Merlin Wildcat that you're looking at completely indigenous uh, British designs. So it's basically taking yeah. an existing aeroplane, adapting it as best you can to meet the needs of the end user, i.e. the Navy. And it, okay, didn't always get it right. But the point about losses, uh, people don't understand, can't envisage now how we could tolerate yeah. the losses of men and, and women uh, at the rate they were happening in the 50s and 60s. It was just accepted. Or you, you go flying off a, off a carrier or whatever, um, and if you, you, you crash and burn and die, well, you know, uh, there are plenty more chaps coming along. It was almost yeah. that attitude. Um, yeah. yeah. But, and it's, but that's driven by the training systems which weren't always quite as robust as they could have been uh the design issues that we said and just an acceptance that flying is dangerous um but you know we, we have to just carry on that's yeah. sad, sad but true 
Yeah, I know. I know many fixed wing pilots of today that still um, detest rotary aircraft. They just think that they're the uh, the devil incarnate because they've got so <laughs> many parts flying in all all different directions. But but yes. let's go back to um, to to the whirlwind and um, the engine we talked about. It simply mm. just wasn't good enough, was it? No, it wasn't. To, I mean, to be fair to Alvis. That, that in all these are actually not a bad engine in the right sort of aeroplane. Uh, I trained on the Leonides when I first did my engine training in the Air Force. So the Leonides in an aircraft like the, the piston engine Provost or the Pembroke or Sea Prince was not a bad engine at all. But to now stick it in the nose of a helicopter in a strange position and ask much more of it uh, during its maximum power for most of a flight, is really a recipe for disaster. You're asking for, for trouble, and, and trouble was what they got. The, the, the engine yeah, was just out. not. Yeah, the engine was just not capable of continually profi- mm. uh, producing the performance that's being demanded of it. Yeah, and there's some um, some some great stories in the book that are well worth. Um, a read of uh, some of the training you said, but also some of the accidents and incidents, and some of the escapes from mm-hmm. from from some of those. Um, yeah. Mentioned the Wessex. Let's let's move on to talk about the Wessex. I right. don't know why it's probably the the time of my life, but the Mark V. I always when mm. I think about the fleet air arm and I think about a helicopter, it's the Wessex Mark V that always come comes to mind. I would, probably early teens or uh, and very influential tell yeah. us about the wessex and the models and and its right. role in the fleet air arm. A- absolutely well the wessex originated as the sikorsky s58 as you know um it was adapted by the navy essentially to replace the whirlwind primarily in the anti-submarine role so along comes the wessex mark one and hey ho, here we go again with the problematic engine the dear old Napier Gazelle, which was in reality never going to be up to the task that was asked of it. You're asking it, again, to produce maximum power output or very high power output for long periods of time, especially when you're hovering or when you're trying to do some sort of load lifting. Um, and it was just not successful. But the Mark I Wessex, the engine aside, was a very successful aeroplane, very capable um, a, a step forward, a considerable step forward from the whirlwind. The Mark I moved on to the Mark III, still with the Gazelle engine, with more advanced anti-submarine radars and all those sorts of things. But it was only when somebody came along and said, look, enough of this Napier Gazelle, which they struggled to improve the reliability of, but never really got it sorted out, and put the gnome in it, which then produced the Mark V. And you talk to Wessex people who have experience of both variants, the gazelle-powered and the gnome-powered, and they all say, well, the Wessex 5 was a fantastic aeroplane. In fact, there's a really good uh, piece in Volume 4, The Ode to the Wessex, which is written by a guy who flew all the marks of Wessex, and he sort of bows down and gives um, honour and thanks to the Western producing the Mark V. It was a very, very good aeroplane, uh, particularly, as you said, in the uh, in the jungly role, t- 
taking troops in and out of the jungles of Borneo and all that kind of stuff. Bags of power, so all those lack of power issues with the gazelle had gone. Uh, in fact, if anything, an excess of power sometimes on the Mark V. Hugely successful helicopter. And, you know, we talk about the whirlwind, we talk about the, the Wessex, we'll get on to, to, to maybe the Sea King in a bit. These were really big helicopters as well, weren't they? Um, and present day, out, outside of the Merlin and the heavy lift there, we tend to think about some of the fleet air arm helicopters, the Wasp, the Lynx, the mm. Wildcat, being mm. being a bit smaller. Um, why was it that in those sort of Cold War years, the predominance was towards these big heavy helicopters and, and not some of the some of the lighter ones? Because was it because the ships were bigger? Is it because I, I, I was trying to get well, my head around that when I was yeah, reading okay. it. it? Initially, it was thought we need helicopters on ships. Yes, they're big, noisy things with big rotors flapping around on top. We've um, plenty of aircraft carriers. It's, we put on aircraft carriers. But then at some point, somebody had his light bulb moment and said, well, look, why can't we have a smaller helicopter that we can put on the back of a frigate or a destroyer? Well, what, what would that do for us? Where to give the frigate or destroyer eyes to look over the horizon to see what's coming? And if we can give that helicopter some sort of anti-submarine capability, then you're immediately upping the capability of the ship. Along the way, you've then got a search and rescue capability there and then on the ship. And that use of small helicopters on smaller vessels in the surface fleet has been a tremendous success, uh, led by the WASP, it has to be said. And again, talking to people uh, who've flown and maintained those helicopters, there, there's a lot of... Uh, genuine love both the wasp the lynx and the wildcat is pretty well respected too so it was accepting or realizing that helicopters are not just useful on the carriers particularly as we started to get rid of carriers so there were fewer and fewer so we can get them on other surface vessels as well and um, which immediately expands the usability on the roles you can have for a helicopter and Steve, the thing that struck me um, reading some of those, uh, the stories that you, you, you've got in the book, um, we talked about it earlier, is how many airframes and lives were lost back then. It was big numbers. Yes, it was. Uh, if Just stepping away from the rotary ring world for a minute, um, the one that always people flag up and say, throw their hands up in horror and say it's awful is the Sea Vixen, which... It's in service from 1960-ish, 1971, thereabouts. And in that time, 51 men lost their lives in sea vixens. And that's absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the helicopter world, I mean, there are various reasons for that. The helicopter world wasn't at that level of loss. But nonetheless, as I alluded to before, there was, for right or wrong reasons, however you look at it, an acceptance that, the type of flying being done in that kind of environment is going to result in losses and people dying. And, and it's just something we have to accept if we're going to go on having uh, military aviation. Uh, that, that view has changed to a large degree now uh, for the various reasons that I said earlier on. It, it was just 
they couldn't do anything else about it because they didn't understand yeah in many ways how to mitigate risk yeah yeah and do you think given your experience in in the world of safety that they could have mitigate mitigated some of those risks i mean we all know about how we plan now was it a very different culture was the technology good enough to mitigate well, some of those risks the, the, the technology was a lot better than maybe you might think given that loss but no it was the culture that was different right. absolutely the culture um Hmm. flying off a carrier, flying off a ship is always going to be dangerous, um, but that's what we've got to do. And so we have to accept that um, we are going to lose people. They're, being blunt, there will always be another aeroplane, another pilot, um, terribly sad, we'll go and uh, drink a toast to him and put drinks on his bar bill and, uh, and move on. But it was that culture was just somehow acceptable in those days did you know that the first g-suit for british pilots was essentially a chest high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water the water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive g was applied did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Well, let's talk about another airframe that's really iconic and, and, and comes through again through some of the stories in the book. And that, of course, is what we know as, a, as the Sea King. Yeah. Um, and um, that heavy lift capability comes back. Mm. But again, for me, the stories that come through the book – um, the command, the use by the commandos, yeah. and that whole jungly um, theme. But oh. the jungly, uh, the title jungly came much earlier. You mentioned it earlier in Borneo. Tell us a little bit about how you've covered that in the book. Um, yes, the expression jungly actually goes back to the whirlwind days, very early on, about 1956, if I remember rightly. It was recognised that, ah, oh, now we can get a number of troops inside a whirlwind. Would it be good if we could start using these newfangled helicopters to deliver troops in some sort of confrontation, if you like, uh, almost exactly where they're needed, drop them in behind enemy lines or whatever, um, a capability we hadn't got before. So that was what started the commando helicopter role, which essentially is is still known as. Um, the jungly nickname came primarily during operations in Borneo, during the Indonesian confrontation, um, when Indonesia was trying to prevent the uh, Malaysian State Federation being set up. Um, and you, because you're fighting a jungle war in tremendously difficult mountainous terrain, obviously jungly, hence the name, the only way you're going to rapidly be able to insert troops, albeit in modest numbers, is by air 
And the only way you can do that is using a helicopter. So that was where we mentioned it earlier, the Wessex Five really came to the fore. And the Wessex jungly fleet really wrote a lot of the rules which are still enforced today with what is now a Merlin jungly fleet. And in between the two, of course, you've, you've had the Sea King. And probably one of the best known, well, is it best known, I ask myself, but one of the best known operations should be by a jungly Sea King was the insertion of the SAS troop behind the lines in, uh, intended to be in Argentina, but actually in Chile, um, by yep. a Sea King flying off Invincible. That is just an extraordinary story. And yeah. I was so fortunate to be able to interview um, one of the pilots of that Sea King. This, it's just, if people don't know what it was all about, the idea was to, because the, the Falklands uh, task force was terrified by the Exocet missile, and the Argentinians made no secret of the fact that if they could sink one or both of our two carriers, Invincible and Hermes, that would be a huge strike against the task force. Um, so it was decided we've got to try and disable this Exocet threat. And the, the idea came yeah. up was to take uh, an SAS troop into Argentina, drop them off within reasonable walking distance of the airbase in Chile where the Supertentars were operating from and disable the aeroplanes and kill the crew. That was the plan. Now, because the Sea King would not have had sufficient range to get back to the carrier, the only option was was for it to fly on, land in Chile, which is a neutral, semi-friendly country, destroy the helicopter and the crew seek their own salvation. It's just an extraordinary story. And of all the helicopters in the book, all the helicopter types, it's the stories that came out with the Sea King that really struck me. That's one. And the other one I'd like to mention, it did so much in search and rescue. And there's one particular search and rescue operation with the Sea King. That was when the uh, the merchant ship, the Ben Asdale, came to yeah. grief on the Cornish coast. Um, at night, Sea Kings from Caldrose were sent out to uh, try and rescue the crew. The position of the ship was almost impossible to rescue from because it was right at the base of quite high cliffs. It's night. The weather was not very good. And again, I've, I've interviewed two people who were on that helicopter that night, and it just makes your hair curl. The only yeah. way they could rescue these people off the ship, bear in mind you have to have the helicopter pointing into wind, was to get so close to the cliffs backwards because they couldn't couldn't fly in cockpit first because that would not be with the wind. So they had to reverse in over the ship and they had to have the Coast Guard people on top of the cliff radioing the Sea King to say, a uh, bit, bit more, a bit, bit closer, a bit closer, a bit closer to make sure the tail rotor didn't hit the cliff. Just extraordinary. And they did it. Those yeah. sorts of things are the sorts of stories. You, yes, you get the everyday the relatively mundane stuff, the, the humorous stories and all the rest, which I try to sprinkle throughout the books. But it's stories like that that people should go, bloody hell, really? That's incredible. They're the, they're the sort of stories that need to be out there. Mm. 
Yeah, need need to be told, and uh, we love the Sea King for it, of course. Um, I, I was fascinated, and and sticking with this, um, this this theme of risky flying, I was fascinated. Um, and I'm not sure I ever knew this about refueling by hose, um, <laughs> yeah. airborne from a moving yeah. ship. And I yes. was trying to rack my brains to think, did I ever know this happened? Because it's such a crazy thing to think of. Um, yeah. and I'm, I don't think I ever did. And when I was reading it, I was looking at the picture and I said, this is just madness. <laughs> but what it really comes down to, is and this comes throughout the whole book is the impressive airmanship and we've just talked yeah. uh, about that rescue that's something that comes through the whole book isn't it from mm. from mm. right from those early days from the dragonflies and the whirlwinds right through to the merlins yes absolutely most incredible airmanship um and we're talking about helicopters operating off ships and under the hovering hovering while you're refueling that you're talking about primarily the reason for that is if you're in a sea king you can get fuel from uh, a frigate or a destroyer because it has uh, facilities for a helicopter but you can't land on because you're too big so the only way you can refuel is as you say is to hoik uh, a refueling hose up from the deck of the ship and plug it in um, and it's also worth really pointing out yes the airmanship for things like that is is tremendous but my I take my hat off as an engineer to all the engineers who are working in those sorts of conditions. You see some of the images of the uh, a frigate in heavy seas rolling up and down all over the place, uh, trying to launch and recover a wasp or a lynx. And they did it. I mean, that's extraordinary courage on the part of the guys on the, uh, the flight deck who having to manage manage all this stuff and then maintain the helicopter once it's eventually back in the hangar or tied down on the back of the deck. It's just extraordinary stuff. Yeah, and let's not forget, even in the title, you make it clear it's men, women, air and ground crew as well these stories are from. So, um, you know, yeah, there is a, a, a mixture of, uh, of all of those. Um, yes. Before we, we, we finish off on the different types of airframe, uh, and come up to maybe modern day. Um, we've mentioned them occasionally, but you've got the wasp and, and the lynx in there. Yeah. Again, the wasp for me, um, Cold War, um, you know, there's lots of stuff out there about the wasp, what it's done. Um, mm. But it's such a fragile airframe. But by oh. goodness, it did an awful lot for the fleet air arm, didn't it? Oh, it, it did. And again, it's a very... A helicopter is very much looked upon with, with fondness by people who flew it. Mm. Um, and it's not actually quite as fragile as it looks. Yes, it looks pretty fragile, but it was a, it had to be actually a pretty robust, sturdy aeroplane to stand up with all that hammering on and off bouncing ships, as we've just been saying. Um, yeah. Yes, it, uh, extraordinary. The, we talk about scary things. One of the things that I was told by several WASP people, and it's, it's in the book, is, yes, you can hang two torpedoes underneath a WASP. So if a sub, uh, an enemy submarine, let's say, or a surface vessel has been detected somewhere near your ship, yes, you can arm the WASP with two torpedoes 
and it can go out and attack the ship. But when you hang two torpedoes under a wasp, your flight duration is in minutes. So you've got something like, I forget the exact number, but it's, it's in the book, 10 yeah. or 12 minutes from takeoff, find your target, attack it with your torpedoes and get back on your home, your ship. And that was just accepted. <laughs> well, okay. Oh, that's madness. Yeah. But uh, yeah. amazing helicopter. And, uh, and the Licks, the Links equally are obviously far more capable, uh, but just carried on the tradition yeah. of good old Westland. I know the Wasp was actually a Saunders Road design, but it was Westland when they came to build it. Good old Westland came yeah. up with a star, um, both the Wasp and the Lynx, and um, current opinions are right, I'm sure they are, with the Wildcat, which is, was originally just going to be called the Super Lynx. Well, that's another story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, the Lynx... Um still in service with some um, air forces and navies around the world, um, yeah. but set all of those records. Oh. It was a real uh, fabulous helicopter. But that starts to bring us up to date. Um, mentioned the Wildcat there yeah. um, and the Merling we've, we've talked oh. about uh, yeah. as well. So yeah. coming, do you think in 20, 30 years time, we'll be writing stories about the Wildcat and the, the Merling in, in the same way? Do you think we'll have the fondness uh, or is it just me reminiscing about my younger years and Wessex and whirlwinds <laughs> and, and, and things like that? Well, I think it's highly likely that they will go on for 20 years. Um, aircraft designs, not least helicopters, have great longevity now uh, because they're so expensive to uh, design and manufacture, produce and support in the first place that they, they tend to go on and on. Um, yes, Merlin wildcat people are very fond of them. Um, I think it's always going to be the case if it's if it's a, an aircraft that you've had most of your formative years, let's say, as a pilot, flying or maintaining. You'd naturally develop a fondness for it. You might say, "Oh, it's a it's a dog and it's hard to maintain. And it leaks like a sieve." But actually, you'll love it because that's what you've been practicing your skill on, whether it's engineering skill or flying skill. So, yes, I think in 20 or 30 years' time, people will be looking back on fondness with Merlin and Wildcat. Now, whether we have uh, pilotless drone helicopters after that, um, well, I don't know, I won't be around, but you never know. Uh, whether people <laughs> look back fondly on pilotless helicopters, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. I, uh, that's that's I something else. Mixed, mixed feelings on that one. Mixed Me feelings on, on that one, Steve. Yeah. Um, but let, let, let's, I suppose, put you on the spot a bit. Let, looking back, how, how do you summarise your feelings? Having met these people, having talked to them, um, having enriched their stories and brought them to, to people like me, um, how do you feel about helicopters in the fleet, Aaron? Oh, I'm a convert. I, I, I'll be quite honest, when I started this series, the original plan was to have two volumes. Volume one, as it does, covering all the air defence aeroplanes. Volume two, covering all the other fixed wing, strike and airborne early warning gannets and land-based uh, training aeroplanes and so on. And it was going, that was it going to be it. And it was in an early meeting with uh, a retired, very highly respected admiral, PTM admiral. And he said, well, what about the helicopters? And as he quite rightly said, as I said to you earlier on, from 2010 to 2020, the fleet here on was helicopters, so you can't ignore it. Uh, 
yeah, okay, fair enough. But then having got into it and getting the stories that I've got, and I have to say that I've only got room in that volume for a small percentage of the stories I've got. Um, but everything wow. I've everything I've collected, well, just to give you a, a bit of a feel for it, I'm restricted to 125,000 words per volume in this series, of which I write probably right. the 25,000, and the 100,000 is people's contributions. So four volumes, yeah. 400,000 words. My archive from the stories I've been given and still coming in is one and a quarter million words, and the whole wow. archive is... Wow. Is going to it's not going to be lost. It's going to be perpetuated by uh, native wings. It's going to be handed over to them. Um, right. But yes, just to go back to your question, I'm a complete convert now, having heard the stories that people have given to me and seen the enthusiasm, and that's that's my greatest reward from this whole book series: the enthusiastic way in which predominantly X feet air on people, but some serving ones as well, have come on board with yeah. this project. So we're so glad that somebody finally is recording our stories and, and, and telling it to the public at large. And they long ago forgiven me for being a crab talking about the fleet air on. <laughs> uh, um, but yes, that, that that's my reward, that they are – if I've pleased the people who've contributed, if they come to me and say – Good book. Really pleased with that. Which they do. That's my reward because I'm able to yeah. say I've helped spread the free tear on word. Yeah, yeah. And to put it into context, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking, and and I've got the book next to me here. The thing I like about the production of these books is it has a sleeve, but it also has the printed hardcover as well mm. so it's good for me when i'm reading in the bath as it were i can still keep my sleeve um, nice yeah. and <laughs> nice and nice and clean so it goes back on my shelf and looks like new um, <laughs> it's a lovely heavy book it's mm. um you know it's got you you've got all the nice index indices um you know 300 pages uh, great photographs color black and white um mm. throughout the whole book it's a lovely piece of work in its own right i think sometimes in a series you can get a little bit lost in thinking what's next what came before you know do i mix them up do it but actually this yeah. is a book that can stand in its own right if that makes mm. any sense yeah yeah indeed um yes well, well thank you for the kind words uh, i agree I, i'm very happy with the uh, production standards that grub street achieved with these books really am um the photograph side has always been my intention as far as possible, to only use photographs from private collections that have never seen the light of day before. It just adds so much more of a personal right. touch to the books. And yeah, yeah. yes, each book, I'm glad to hear you say it's standalone. Uh, yes, each book has a slightly different theme. And so people might say, well, what's volume four going to be then? Uh, well, that's going to be a little bit different, but you'll have to wait and see. But it, again, will be... Uh, a standalone volume, same kind of material, but presented in a, in a very different way. So, yes, that they yeah. are all separate, but they come together as a whole to tell the whole story. Yeah, and, and, and it does a great job. So, Steve, where can we find out about the book online? Where's the best place to go? Uh, well, Grub Street Publishing, obviously, uh, right. have their own website, and you'll find out all about it there. 
Navy Wings as well, very important because the Navy Wings Flight Store uh, sells the books. And right. Navy Wings benefits from every volume they sell, which helps to right. fund okay. their, their aircraft flying program. Um, right. Other than that, the usual outlets. We'll put links um, to to both of those in the show notes. Um, and, of course, just for everyone, just to recap, Fleet Air on Boys, Helicopters, True Tales from Royal Navy Men, Women, Air and Ground Crew. Um, we'll put those links in the show notes. Been fabulous learning about the rotary craft of the Fleet Air Arm. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for talking to me. So that's it. If you'd like to support the program, we welcome listener donations, but we particularly like it when you engage with us, write reviews, tell us what you think about the program, and of course, support our guests, particularly those authors um, who uh, put so much effort into coming on and helping us tell their stories. So please do engage with us, give us some feedback on the episode today, and let us know what you think about the uh the book you can find me at nascot hornet on twitter and of course you can find tim gareth and ellie on the extended twitter facebook and instagram feeds that's it with the arrival of the music it's goodbye from steve goodbye and it's goodbye from me peter johnson remember stay tuned to this frequency that is of course aerospace radio station extended legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. And that's it. So if you'd like to talk to support... There you go, Steve. Blown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, let me just make a note of that point. Almost, I almost got there. <laughs> Let me just make a note there. Extend it. This is XTP Media.